Hey, American Hauntings listeners, it's Troy. Need more American Hauntings in your life? Yeah, you know you do. So why not check out our other podcast, The Alternate Show, that we do for our Patreon supporters only. Comes out every other week, opposite this one, which means you get our special kind of murder, mystery, mayhem, and the macabre every single week. Right now, we're almost finished with our third season, Sinister, the true story of H.H. Holmes, the infamous serial killer linked to the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. But of course, that's not all there is to his twisting, turning, and depraved story. So check it out and get that new episode every week and be a part of American Hauntings by becoming a Patreon supporter and subscribing at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. Now let's get on with the show. Someone was watching the KIMTV news on the morning of June 27th, 1995, might have noticed that the popular anchor, Jody Husentrude, wasn't behind the news desk that day, but they might not have thought much about it. They had no idea that anything strange was happening. But Jody's co-workers did. Jody wasn't the kind of person who skipped work, not without a good reason, and she didn't have one. In fact, she said she was on her way to the station when she was reached by phone. But when 6 a.m. rolled around and Jody still wasn't there, employees at the station knew something was wrong. They didn't expect to still be wondering where Jody was almost 30 years later. Welcome to American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. And welcome to our latest season, Gone, which is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. Since the start of American history, our nation has been plagued by tragic events, strange occurrences, and with mysteries that cannot be explained, just like the disappearances we've been featuring this season. For our seventh season, we have opened the files of people who've gone missing and vanished without a trace, never to be seen again. These have been stories of heartbreak, tragedy, and despair. They have been bizarre, unexpected, and have often seemed impossible. And yet they did happen. Every one of the people who've been part of this season walked into oblivion and just never returned. Every case remains open. Every mystery is unsolved. Each story ends with no real conclusion. Each person is simply gone. Well, the end of season seven is almost here, but we have a few more mysteries to revisit that remain unsolved, like this one, episode 23. The shocking story of a young woman who had everything to live for and no reason to vanish, and yet she did, leaving a mystery that has baffled friends, families, and police detectives for almost three decades. Jody Husentrout was born in June 1968 to parents, Emma Jean, who went by Jane, and her husband, Maurice. She grew up in Long Prairie, Minnesota, and was the youngest of three girls. Sadly, Jody's father died in 1982. Jody had many friends in school. She was a happy person and always fun to be around. She also had drive and ambition. She was an excellent golfer and was twice a member of the state championship high school team. 
She attended St. Cloud University, where she studied television broadcasting and speech communication. And after graduating there in 1990, she earned her first on-air job at KGAN in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Before long, she moved to Mason City to work at KIM-TV, a CBS affiliate, where she became a morning and noon news anchor. Jody worked hard at her job and took great pride in her position as the anchor of KIMT's early morning news. She went on each morning at 6 a.m., but usually arrived at the studio several hours before that. Even so, on June 27, 1995, no one was that surprised when she didn't come rolling in at 3.30. She was known for sometimes being a few minutes late. Jody and her assistant, Amy Coons, did have an unspoken agreement between them, though. If one of them was going to be late, they would always call. But that morning, Jody didn't. With 4 a.m. fast approaching, Amy, who also produced the morning show, called Jody at home. Everything seemed normal, but she knew she had woken her up. She asked what time it was, and Amy told her it was almost 4 and that she needed to get to work. She later recalled that Jody only seemed concerned with being late. She didn't hear anything out of the ordinary. Jody simply told Amy, I'll be right there. But when she didn't show up at 5.30, Amy called again. This time, there was no answer. So she assumed she was on the way. But just before the camera started rolling at 6, Jody was still absent. And Amy called again. No answer. Amy was more than a little irritated. Jody not being there meant that Amy had to do the whole show herself, which meant a lot of last-minute prep work. Plus, she had to be on camera and take over for Jody at the desk. She'd later remember being mad and also worried at the same time. Even though Jody missed her alarm every once in a while, she'd never missed the show on purpose. It was her show, and she loved it. When Jody hadn't arrived by the end of the show, one of the station managers sent a staff member to her apartment to check on her. Amy also called the Mason City Police and asked them to do a welfare check. When police officers arrived at her apartment complex, they found a strange scene in the parking lot. There, scattered around her red Mazda Beata, were her car keys, her purse, hairspray, a hair dryer, and a pair of red high-heeled shoes. These were things that Jody usually tossed into a tote bag and brought to work with her. The tote bag, though, wasn't found at the scene. Officers also noticed something chilling that seemed to suggest that she hadn't just dropped her things and walked away. Her car key had been badly bent. They feared this meant she'd been attacked while unlocking her door or trying to start the engine. The other thing they found seemed to confirm that. They were the drag marks leading away from Jody's car. A quick canvas of the apartment complex found no witnesses to what seemed to be an obvious crime. However, several people did come forward and tell the cops they had seen a white van in the parking lot that morning with its motor running and its parking lights on. At first, it seemed that Jody had been assaulted or kidnapped and no one heard anything out of the ordinary, but that turned out not to be true. Several people did hear someone screaming but no one was concerned because there was a campground not far from the apartment complex and they assumed it was noisy campers. Jody's landlord, who lived on site, added that he'd heard two different male voices that morning, followed by a muffled sound. He looked out his window, though, and didn't see anything. 
Well, an investigation was quickly started at the scene, and detectives went door-to-door asking more questions. Forensic investigators discovered a partial palm print on the outside of Jody's car, but were never able to match it to anyone. Special canine units were brought in to search the complex and along the banks of the nearby Winnebago River, but there were no clues found that would point the way to where Jody had gone. Detectives went to the KIMTV newsroom where they searched Jody's desk looking for leads, like possibly letters from an obsessed fan or a stalker. They didn't find anything, but they soon learned that Jody had encountered some issues with possible stalkers. Unfortunately, that's a very common thing for women in the television news business. The nature of the job makes TV reporters and anchors visible in ways that print and online reporters are not. And when they work in the same market for an extended period of time, viewers can sometimes begin to feel they actually know the people on their screens. These kinds of one-sided connections many people have with public figures create a false sense of friendship and... Even worse, uh, make viewers feel they're entitled to send them critical, inappropriate, or rude messages, or even to seek them out in real life. And in far too many cases, they do more than that. Jody was a kind, outgoing person who would happily talk to anyone. News director Doug Mirbach said that it often took her hours just to go grocery shopping because she'd always talk to people who recognized her. She just seemed to have time for everybody. Jody's sister Joanne believed that Jody was too naive and trusting of her viewers and that her openness with them might have made her a target. She believed that Jody revealed too much about her day to day life to the public, where she went or shopped or ate, and this led to her disappearance. Both Joanne and Jody's friend Tammy Baker believed she was grabbed by an obsessed fan. On June 26th, Jody had played in a celebrity golf tournament, and she told some friends there that she'd been getting some odd phone calls and was going to have to change her number or notify the police if it didn't stop. She actually had notified the police about some disconcerting incidents before. She told Amy Coons that she'd been followed a few times by a black truck while she was out jogging. Amy convinced her to file a police report, but she didn't see the truck anymore after that, and the investigation led nowhere. By lunchtime on June 27th, Jody's disappearance was the top news story, and from that day on, she remained in the news, though less and less as time went by, for the next 25 years. Jody's friends and colleagues were faced with the heartbreaking job of telling her story and made sure to feature her at least once in every broadcast for the next several months. As the investigation progressed, the local police called in the FBI for assistance, and soon, Jody's story was national news. Tips and leads flooded the small town department, but most of them didn't lead to anything. But there was one suspect that the police focused on almost immediately, and he remains the main person of interest to this day. John Vaness was 50 years old when Jody disappeared, and the two of them had been spending a lot of time together. So much time that many who knew Jody believed that John was seriously infatuated with her. John had lived in the same apartment complex as Jody at one time, and he was one of those guys who always seemed to have more money to spend than his job really afforded him. In his case, he had a seemingly modest job, but still managed to have nice clothes, nice cars, and even a $26,000 boat. 
and we'll come back to that boat in a few minutes. Jody and John had met about six months before she vanished. It's unknown if John ever expressed to Jody that he had romantic feelings for her, but he probably did. Friends later said that Jody told them that she'd made it clear to John that she just wanted to be friends. Of course, that's one of the oldest stories in the book. A woman who just wants to be friends and a man who thinks he can wear her down and change her mind. But Jody did seem to genuinely like him, or at least felt some empathy for the lonely, recently divorced seed corn salesman. Maybe she could sense that John was going through a hard time. His marriage had ended badly, and after a series of drunk driving arrests, he'd been ordered to install a breathalyzer device in his van. When friends tried to caution Jody about him, she brushed off their concern, explaining he was more like a father to her than anything else. But I don't think John saw things the same way, especially since Jody often had dinner with him and she and her friend Annie Cruz often met up with him at local bars for drinks. Two weeks before Jody disappeared, John helped Annie throw a surprise birthday party for Jody. Just a few days before she failed to show up for work, Jody had been out on John's expensive boat, a boat that he named after her. So, yeah, if you want to be creeped out by this guy, I think that's appropriate. Vanessa went to the police voluntarily on June 27th to tell them what he knew and added that he was probably the last person to see Jody before she vanished. Nothing creepy there. He said that Jody had come over to his house on June 26th to watch a video that he had from her recent birthday party. John swore, though, that he hadn't seen her that morning and had nothing to do with her disappearance. He'd never do that. I mean, as he told Robin Wolfram, a reporter who worked with Jody at KIMTV during an interview, you can't help but love that woman. You can't help but love her. But as Robin later recalled, she was unnerved by Vanessa and was very ill at ease during the interview. And when she found out that he'd named his boat after Jody, she was done. I kept thinking to myself, she said, I think he might have done it. And she was not the only one who thought so. Amy Kunz later said that John had called the station on the morning of June 27th to ask if Jody had come into work. When Amy said she hadn't, John asked for more information, asking if she was sick. Now, was this call just a coincidence? Or did John simply know that Jody wasn't feeling well? Or did he know she'd had too much to drink the night before since they'd admittedly been together? Oh, we don't know. But Amy Coons was bothered by it, and I am too. And it gets worse than that. You see, John also had a van that was similar to the one that eyewitnesses had seen parked near Jody's apartment on June 27th. Needless to say, Vanessa became the number one suspect in Jody's disappearance, even though a mutual friend of both Jody and John, LaDonna Woodford, claimed that John was with her that morning, and she confirmed this alibi for investigators. Also, in the fall of 1995, the police were forced to admit that John had passed a polygraph test. That didn't end their concerns about his obsession with Jody, though. Those concerns have never gone away. At one point, a retired FBI criminal profiler named Jim Clemente started his own investigation into Jody's case and shared whatever he found with the police. Clemente, along with two other well-known criminal profilers, John Douglas and James Fitzgerald, watched the video from Jody's birthday party, 
Both were struck by John Vaness and his behavior behind of and in front of the camera. Every time that Jody went off to dance or spend any time with another man at the party, John would be hyper-focused on Jody and whatever she was doing. Clemente described it as, quote, having an evil look in his eyes, like he was really pissed off. But you can't build a case against someone because of their facial expressions at a birthday party. It's also important to note that Vanessa was questioned multiple times by the police, but was never formally arrested. He's always maintained his innocence, insisting he had nothing to do with Jody's disappearance. Detectives, though, still don't believe him. In 2004, police checked the basement of a home he'd lived in when Jody vanished, but said the search yielded no new information. In 2017, the Mason City Police executed a search warrant for two vehicles that belonged to John. However, details about the probable cause for the warrant and the results of their search were sealed and have never been opened. In 2019, Vanessa, then in his 70s and living in Arizona, announced that he had been diagnosed with an aggressive form of Alzheimer's disease. He had nothing new to offer about Jody's case then, and if he's still holding any secrets about it today, I'd say the clock has probably run out on his time to reveal them. He'll be taking anything else that he knows to the grave. John Vaness never stopped being a suspect in Jody's disappearance, but he's not alone. In late January 1998, an investigative reporter named Carolyn Lowe at WCCO in Minneapolis began looking into Jody's disappearance. But that hadn't been her intention. She'd actually been covering a terrifying series of rapes in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. The rapist was Tony Jackson, who was arrested in 1997 after handcuffs, a gun, and duct tape were found in his vehicle during a routine traffic stop. After his arrest, trial, and conviction, he was sentenced to life in prison. But it was what Tony Jackson might have done before the Minnesota rapes that got Carolyn Lowe's attention. She discovered that Jackson had been living in Mason City, Iowa, when Jody disappeared. And he'd been living only two blocks away from the station where she worked. In 1995, Jackson was only 21 years old. He'd once been a promising basketball player at Iowa's Waldorf College. He'd been kicked off the team, though, for violent episodes that eventually got him expelled from school. The year before Jody vanished, he enrolled at North Iowa Community College in Mason City, where he showed an interest in broadcasting and even hosted his own student talk show. He started watching the local broadcasters, including Jody, hoping to learn from them and even sought them out in public. According to a man who had become acquainted with Jackson in Mason City through their mutual girlfriends, he spent a lot of time with Tony and they often played basketball together. One day after a game, Jackson invited him to get a few drinks at a bar that Jackson knew was a place where Jody often went. This witness would later ask himself just how Tony knew she often went there. Well, that day when the two of them walked into the place, they saw Jody sitting at the bar. Jackson walked up to her and started talking to her like he knew her, but the acquaintance was too far away to hear their conversation. He assumed that Tony just wanted to get some career advice from her, but after Jackson's subsequent rape conviction, he told the story to the police. 
He theorized that maybe he'd been watching Jody on TV, stalked her to find out her schedule and where she liked to go, and maybe he'd attacked and killed her. Carolyn Lowe did speak with an ex-girlfriend of Jackson's who said they broke up not long before Jody vanished. She told Carolyn that Jackson was a very violent man. When he was angry, he was like a totally different person. It was, she said, like the devil stepped inside of him and just took over. When they broke up, Jackson beat her and tried to choke her. He was arrested for the attack, but the charges were ultimately dropped when the woman moved away and declined to return to Mason City to continue the case. Five days after that attack, Jody disappeared. Four months later, he raped three women in 18 days in Minneapolis and was sent to prison for life. Even though he was behind bars, Carolyn kept digging. She tracked down a witness who said that on the morning of Jody's disappearance, she was almost hit by a car that came speeding out of Jody's apartment complex around 4.40 a.m. It was driving very fast, and its headlights were off. The driver, she said, was an African-American man. Another witness was at the same place at the same time the day before Jody disappeared and said that she'd seen an African-American man, maybe in his late teens, riding a bicycle around the complex. He started riding right next to her as she jogged, which she found disconcerting at that time of the morning, but that's what made her remember him. Although Jackson said he was innocent when he was first interviewed about Jody's case and maintains his innocence now, He certainly made himself look guilty. Carolyn spoke of the former cellmate of Jackson's who said that Tony had bragged about raping and killing an anchor woman in a rap song. The cellmate had even written down the lyrics. Now, I will not rap them for you, but I'll tell you that a line included, she's a stiffen around tiffen in pilage of silage in a by low, low below. Tiffin was a small town a few hours away from Mason City, and Carolyn thought it might be possible that she was buried on a farm near a silo. Somehow, between the reporter and the police, they narrowed down the search area, and police officers, along with cadaver dogs, went to the farm and searched for human remains. Two of the three dogs reacted to something, signaling that a body was there or had been there. The search that followed, though, turned up nothing. There were no forensics connecting Jackson to Jody, so in May 1999, the Mason City Police issued a statement that said that after their investigation, Tony Jackson was not considered a viable suspect in the case. Well, the investigation itself stalled out again and went cold. But as some would soon imply, maybe that's what was supposed to happen. Maybe the cops hadn't found who took Jody because her abductor was one of their own. In September 2011, a startling announcement was made about Jody's case. A former Mason City police officer named Maria Ohl claimed that she'd received a tip from an informant that blamed Jody's disappearance on multiple members of local law enforcement. Specifically, she said that Mason City officers Lieutenant Frank Stearns and Lieutenant Ron Vendeweerd and former Iowa Department of Criminal Investigation agent Bill Bassler knew what happened to Jody. Not only did they have a direct hand in her disappearance, but they also covered up what happened by failing to follow leads that pointed to their guilt. Now, she claimed she had originally received information about the police's possible involvement in the crime in 2007 
and then heard it again with more detail in 2009. She didn't explain why she'd held on to that information for the next two years. But even so, this was bombshell news. Well, or it would have been if Maria Ohl hadn't had a lot of reasons to implicate fellow law enforcement officers in the disappearance. See, in 2010, she'd sued the department, alleging sex discrimination and retaliation against her because of her connections to a church that had filed suit against the city and the police. According to a deposition she'd filed about her lawsuit, Maria claimed to be the subject of ongoing harassment and discrimination and to be denied training and promotions because of her sex and her church affiliations. The Christian Fellowship Church, which she attended, had sued the city and the police department, stating that Chief Mike Lashbrook and Lieutenant Logan Werner had made disparaging remarks about the church that led to an IRS investigation into the church's financial records. The church and its pastor, Reverend Shane Philpot, was cleared of any wrongdoing, and the city settled the lawsuit. Well, the accusations from Maria Ohl were alleged during her own lawsuit, which was later dismissed. Her claims were never seriously investigated, and since that time have been, well, mostly forgotten. The incident turned out to be just another of the weird incidents connected to this case over the years. The next one happened, though, at 11.30 p.m. on January 31st, 2019, and it did have some connections to those allegations. They happened when vandals spray-painted a message on a local billboard that had Jody's photo on it and a plea for information that read, Someone knows something. Is it you? Well, in bright yellow spray paint directly below the text, someone wrote, Frank Stern's Machine Shed. Cold case investigator Steve Ridge found witnesses who said the vandals had been two individuals dressed all in black with their faces covered, who parked in a rear alley behind a tattoo parlor and then used a ladder to climb up to the billboard. But why did they paint those words? Well, you might recall that Frank Stearns was one of the police officers accused by Maria Ohl of being involved in Jody's disappearance. He was also, as it turns out, heading the investigation into Jody's case. Steve Ridge spoke to Frank Stearns at his residence on January 3rd, 2020. He did have a detached building on the premises. However, Stearns lived elsewhere in 1995, so he couldn't have buried anyone under the machine shop. Nor is there any real reason to think he would have. None of the allegations about Stearns were shown to have any truth to them at all. The Vandals had undoubtedly wanted to dredge up old accusations in the case. I mean, even now, there are those who believe that Jody was involved with a married police officer who had a hand in her death. They claim that anyone who looks too closely into that story ends up retaliated against by the cops, or their lives are ruined or ended under suspicious circumstances. And of course, there's no evidence of that, only rumors and conspiracies which, like the numerous theories about Jody's disappearance, seem to multiply as the years go by. One theory about Jody's disappearance claims that she vanished because she simply knew too much. Just a few months before she vanished, one of Jody's friends, Billy Pruins, was shot and killed at his farm outside of town. At first, it was suggested that Billy committed suicide, but Jody, along with his friends and family, didn't believe it. 
By all accounts, Billy had a lot to live for. Just days before his death, he proposed to his girlfriend, Gretchen Tussler, and she'd accept it. He was happy, hardworking, in love, and getting ready to get married. On April 4, 1995, Billy drove his truck into Mason City to pick up a new tractor he'd just purchased. He was so excited about it that he left his truck at the implement store and drove the tractor home. He promised to come back and get the truck the next day. That night, Gretchen and two of Billy's other friends tried to call him, but there was no answer at his house. The next day, one of his friends stopped by to check on him and found his front door was partially open. Stranger, though, Billy's keys were still lodged in the outside lock. He called out to Billy, but for some reason never went inside. When there was no answer, he left. But he couldn't get the weird scene out of his mind, so he called Billy's mother, and she went over to check his house the next day. When she walked in, she found him dead in the living room. He'd been shot in the chest, and the slug from Billy's gun had passed through him, struck the overhead ceiling fan, and had landed on the adjacent kitchen's floor. As mentioned, the police initially ruled his death a suicide, but pressure from family and friends who insisted that Billy had no reason to kill himself got the cause of death changed to undetermined. In addition, the case being made for suicide began to unravel. The gun, which Billy reportedly had in his hand when he was found, had no fingerprints on it. Billy's hands were bagged so they could be tested for gunshot residue, but there wasn't any. It was surmised that Billy had been in a hurry to get in his house, evidenced by his keys still in the lock. Then, for reasons no one can explain, he went through the kitchen and into the dining room to get his gun. It was likely discharged during the struggle that followed. Was someone chasing Billy? Is that why he was in a hurry and retrieved his gun? Maybe. According to his fiance Gretchen, as well as a few of his friends, Billy had been, quote, afraid of something for a few weeks before his death. And it's possible that Jody knew what it was. Not only do some claim that she'd started investigating the circumstances of Billy's death, but there had recently been several drug-related disappearances in the area. If Jody was looking into Billy's death as well as those disappearances, someone involved with them might have wanted to keep her quiet. Well, it's a theory, but it's not the only one. Some claim that Jody ran away to start a new life, but this theory is pretty ridiculous. Jody wanted to make it in television news, starting off in small places like Mason City and then maybe landing a desk in a major market. She had people who loved her friends, family members, and even the non-creepy members of the audience who liked her and wished her well. Jody wouldn't just run away. A few people have accused Jody's producer, Amy Coons, of having something to do with their disappearance. They can give you a list of reasons why she's guilty, like that she wanted Jody's job. Well, of course she did. She wanted to move up too, and admitted later that she'd wanted the job, but certainly not like that. But Amy hasn't done herself any favors by representing Jody in a less flattering light than most of the people who knew her. She stated they were not friends, only co-workers. And she often complained about Jody showing up late for work. She said it happened all the time, even though KIMT's manager said in 1995 that it didn't. She also said that Jody was very demanding and often snapped at her. In other words, not the nice girl everyone made her out to be. And while no one else who knew Jody noticed any strange behavior, Amy claimed that Jody was really up and down before her disappearance. She said Jody's behavior was so erratic she could never figure her out. 
while Amy has been the only one to describe Jody that way or to say those kinds of things about her. But that doesn't mean she killed her or knows who did. She may not have liked working with Jody. And if disliking a coworker can make you responsible when something happens to them, I think many of us would be in a lot of trouble. Well, in 2009, Steve Ridge, that cold case investigator I mentioned earlier, managed to get a look at the last video that showed Jody alive. In the video, Jody got onto a speedboat with two men she'd just met. This was during the same weekend that she'd spent with John Vanessa, John's son, and two of Jody's girlfriends. That same weekend, Jody met the two young men in the ski boat. Witnesses later stated that John was clearly unhappy when she left the boat to spend time with the younger men, but he didn't overreact or cause a scene. In the video, filmed by one of the two young men, Jody and a friend are seen drinking, singing, and dancing on top of the boat's enclosed engine compartment. These guys were harmless, as far as anyone knew, and admitted they liked to cruise around looking for pretty girls on boats or on the beach and invite them onto their boat. They'd party, and often the drinking, singing, and dancing was done for the video camera. Steve Ridge believes it's possible the young men might have followed Jody home and then abducted her on Monday morning. It's possible a confrontation occurred in Jody's apartment the night before. You see, when the police had searched her place, they found the toilet seat had been left up. If the men were there, this could explain why. And don't forget, Jody's landlord said he'd heard the voices of two men in the parking lot that morning. But what if those two guys were exactly what they said they were? Just a couple of party bros who liked to pick up pretty girls like Jody. She could have gotten back on John's boat later that day and never thought of those two guys again. And the same goes for those guys who told Steve Ridge they'd kept partying without Jody and her friend and didn't even know they had video footage of her until it was found by accident literally decades later. What if it wasn't those two guys the landlord heard, though? What if it was John Vanessa and his son? Based on his other behavior, it's possible, hell, very likely, that John was angry when Jody jumped ship to hang out with those guys and he killed her out of jealousy. And what if his son helped him move the body? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. But those aren't the only options. Jody's landlord heard two men's voices that morning. They could have been the men from the boat or John and his son. The toilet lid being left up suggests there was at least one man in Jody's apartment the night before she vanished. Or does it really? I mean, we can't just assume that's why the toilet lid was up. There were also empty beer cans in her apartment, and they were a brand of beer Jody didn't usually drink. This could mean that a man or men came over the night before, or it could mean that someone brought the beer to her house weeks before, left them in Jody's fridge, and she decided to drink them that night because she wanted to get drunk and didn't want to go out and buy more beer. And since Jody was tired and overslept in the morning of her abduction, it's possible she stayed up late and drank too much, and the toilet seat was up because she was throwing up in the middle of the night. Maybe she was late to work because she was hungover. Or, for all we know, she was cleaning the toilet the previous night and left the seat up by mistake. She could have been alone that night. Or maybe someone who was never on the suspect list at all visited Jody's apartment and because she never mentioned it to anyone, we don't know who it was. But let's back up a second and assume that two men did go to Jody's apartment that night. Assuming the landlord heard what he said he did, of course. Maybe the two guys wanted to hang out some more. Maybe they wanted to date her or have sex with her. Or maybe John showed up, angry at her for leading him on. 
Maybe Jody said she wasn't interested in any of them. Maybe the guys from the boat or John Vaness left Jody's apartment feeling angry or rejected and instead of going home, waited around for her to leave for work and attacked her. And though it seems unlikely, there's a chance that white van, which looked a lot like the one John owned, spotted in the parking lot, had nothing to do with Jody at all. Or maybe the driver was a random stranger who saw her walk into her car and decided to attack her. It's no wonder the police have never been able to make any arrests in this case. There are so many things that could have happened to her and so little evidence linking someone to her disappearance that literally anything could have happened to Jody. To this day, John Vaness remains at the top of the suspect list. And if I had to guess on this one, I'd say he was involved, but there's no way to prove it. Then again, there are so many things that could have happened to Jody that pretty much anyone could have been involved. Since the time of Jody's disappearance in 1995, the police, FBI, and private investigators have questioned more than 1,000 people who were suspected of being connected to the case in some way. Countless hours have been spent running down leads and chasing stories, but none of them had resulted in any conclusive evidence about a single suspect. Jody was declared legally dead in May 2001, but Tragically, no clues leading to the whereabouts of Jody or her body have ever been discovered. But the police and her family refuse to simply give up. The case continues to be investigated as information discovered over the last few years has been unearthed. Her story stays in the news. It's frequently told and retold online in books and on television shows. Who knows? This might be a story that can finally be solved. Maybe by the police or a cold case investigator or by someone who isn't part of law enforcement at all. Maybe the necessary clues will be found. Maybe DNA testing will improve even more. Maybe someone behind bars will come forward with a story he overheard from another inmate. Maybe someone who knows the secrets of John Vaness will finally talk. Maybe John himself before his disease destroys his memory altogether. Maybe. That's all we can say. Maybe it will be solved. At least I hope so. I think it's time that Jody finally came home. Have you ever wanted to learn a new language? And I don't mean like spells or incantations to trap spirits, you weirdos. I mean like a new language that could help you start communicating with more people on this plane today. Then I need to tell you about Rosetta Stone. Look, you know the brand, you know the name. They have the expertise and a 30-year legacy, which makes them more qualified than ever to help you learn a new language today. They've helped millions of people build the fluency and confidence to speak new languages. Now, this is the part where Troy would tell me that I made some kind of grammatical error, but he's not here right now, so like, I don't know, it's like speaking tongues. Rosetta Stone focuses on speaking practice for real-life scenarios to get you ready for real conversations with real people. Or maybe you can even learn how to use some different types of Ouija boards. I don't know. Either way, Rosetta Stone can help you learn faster and retain your new language better. Honestly, Rosetta Stone really would have come in handy for season four of New Orleans because I know we butchered some of those French names and I apologize once again. Now you all know I have a nine to five job when I'm not at the podcast factory and Rosetta Stone actually helped me not make a total fool out of myself while I was in Brazil interviewing celebrities. 
Obrigado. And now I want to help you. So don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, American Hauntings podcast listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Rosetta Stone, how language is learned. Wait, by the way, Troy, like where do words come from? Hey, no, 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 don't walk away. Oh, Troy, where do words... Yeah, I might have to. Yeah, I might have to. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Are uh, you ready to go? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Whenever you are. Well, thanks for returning for more episodes of the American Hauntings podcast, where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. This is season seven of the podcast, which we call... Yeah, I'm not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> it's this scene seven is called gone um i'm your co-host and with me is my co-host author historian crime buff and recently getting over a cold the founder of american hauntings troy taylor yes i wasn't going to stress my voice which i'm just hoping hangs on through the entire podcast yeah i wasn't uh, sure for, what you were for that yeah so yeah i wasn't sure how you were how you're going to handle that one but uh we're going to try to be light on troy's voice today uh because the man you know he, he, make, he might make a living with the written word but also the spoken word i'd say a lot yeah. um, lately yeah. and uh yeah so i'm i'm sure that your voice has been going out because you've been using it a lot because you've been doing a lot of stuff so what's been going on no really up? it's just been because i had a cold um i i really didn't have anything uh, oh, wow. This past weekend, Shooting I know. Down the I, transition. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. Well, I had a, I you know, I had a book <laughs> signing uh, this weekend, but oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I did talk some during that, and by the end of that, it was not good. But, oh. um, but it, it's doing okay. So, and and you know, uh, and cruising as we are getting to the end of this season of the podcast and our Patreon podcast as well, mm -hmm. uh, we are also getting. To the end of the season of everything so at this point by the time people hear this i'll only have a few things left uh, two of which are not completely sold out already so yeah i got a river road tour on the 15th and uh they and that's only got a few seats and the the big spirits of christmas event which only has a few seats so we're pretty much down to the end on both things now but of course you know i've already posted stuff for the rest of the winter so and and they're already selling out nice. our first I know our first um, devil came to St. Louis, St. Louis exorcism event in January is already sold out, uh, but we've got more coming, you know, uh, on the schedule so you can check out and see what we've got coming up um, Bonnie and Clyde uh the the exorcist you know the uh gangs of southern illinois the donner party always my favorite dinner uh that we have one of my favorites so <laughs> no, i'm just, so hungry it's right open now. for so many jokes you yes. know so and we make them <laughs> and of course then february 10th is the big dead of winter event so mm -hmm. all of that information online uh the vip stuff on that by the way um you know we started adding that so people wanted reserved seating and things like that so we put together VIP packages. I think both of them have like four seats left. 
So if you're, yeah, if you have not booked already for, for that, for dead of winter, you may want to get on that because we are getting down to the end uh, of the VIP stuff. The day of course is free. I mean, as far as, you know, if you don't care where you're sitting and you just want to come and hang out, uh, that is wide open. You just need to bring your uh, canned goods or non-perishable items and uh, you can come on in. Awesome. Yeah. And you'll hear way more about that as, um, as it gets closer and closer. And it's always the one thing I look forward to every year. Like I said, it's the one good thing we do. Um, our good, our good <laughs> the, one, the one nice thing we do. So. Yeah. Our good <laughs> so yeah. Check that out. That's awesome. Uh, all right. I'm going to dive into a listener review. This one is from, it's either stack one, two, nine or Stace one, two, nine. I'm not sure, but it's just titled, well, I feel dumb, which is the phrase <laughs> oh. that I can relate to. Yeah. Right. Well. Yeah. Me too. Uh, the review says, I learned of this podcast years ago when I first started attending the American Haunted Conference, Haunted American Conference, but since I just always listened to YouTube, I never bothered. Well, I just started a couple of days ago and I'm binging while refinishing woodwork. The job you guys do is exceptional. When reading Troy's books, it baffles me the more info he still finds that I haven't heard after watching every documentary about a subject. <laughs> Glad to see his podcast the same way. And not to leave out Cody, your chemistry is very enjoyable. So thank you very much. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, that, uh, good luck with your with the woodwork, and uh, yeah, I hope, uh, thank you so much for leaving the reviews. Um, are you ready to dive into the show well, at large? I've got a couple of reviews too. Okay, want to forget about the text line uh-huh. um, because if you've got a comment about the show um, or, like I said, quick question that you don't want to email to us, um, you can text it to us as well. Um, you can text us at 217-791-7859, and uh, it, it may get read on the show. Uh, I'm going to read a few here. Uh, we've got a lot. We always have a lot, but I'm going to do a few because I don't want to take a chance. Um, but So this one is uh, from Terry in the 509 area code. It says, love, love, love the podcast. You guys are hilarious. So I'm thinking she doesn't get out a lot. Um, you, Troy, love the book without a trace. Thank you. Looking forward to reading, listening to others. Please, please, please keep up the great work. Longtime fan Terry. So that, um, was a nice one. Uh, then we have one from Tim Biggs in the 618. Um, he's actually got a, an answer for a question for you Mm -hmm. to start with. Uh, he sent me a, it's a screenshot. And remember how you asked me, we were talking about Oklahoma and you asked me what that weird little handle was yeah what happens on there yeah he uh just says what goes on there and then it says i was told colorado paid extra to not share a border with texas (laughs) that's pretty funny (laughs) that's pretty good (laughs) but he says hey it's tim tim biggs here enjoyed the halloween show had one movie come to mind i know why it wasn't on the list because it's not good but it's called motel hell and i i knew about that one as well but he says however it does have a great tagline so here's the tagline. You go, we know we love to read the taglines when mm-hmm. we do the movie things. This one says, it takes all kinds of critters to make farmer Vincent's fritters. He said, uh, and then he added that great explanation about Oklahoma. So that was the tagline. And I, you probably have not seen Motel Hell. It I did have not. not get a very wide release. Um, for for what, the b- most bizarre thing is I always remember that it came out in 1980. Uh, because the year before that, I started buying uh, Fangoria magazine. Uh-huh, That's when okay. it first started. And I remember it being on like the cover of the issue, like number six and thinking, huh, 
you know, because a lot of those movies I, I couldn't get access to at the time. Everything was in theaters, no home video much to speak of at that point. And so I was very excited about a lot of the movies that I saw in Fangoria, but that was not one of them. So uh, and then <laughs> I have. <laughs> <laughs> I have okay. this one that this is just one from from past uh, from uh, the 520 area code that said, I don't blame you for not liking my suggestion of the ghastly scribble. Remember, I said, but oh, yeah. I love I love you for suggesting it. Uh, I wasn't a fan of it either, but couldn't think of anything great. So, yeah, don't don't feel bad. Uh, I believe me, uh, Cody and I, we just don't talk about all the ones we've rejected. But believe me, there <laughs> right. have been plenty. So. <laughs> Uh, this one says, uh, oh, this is from Diana. Or I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. This is from, okay. Yeah, okay, she put Diana uh, in the 785. Um, Diana is a friend of ours, research librarian in uh, in Kansas. And she had already written out, out to us about a 1980s disappearance that we mm -hmm. were. I was going to look into. But she did add this about the horror film theme. She said, possible future themes, trapped by weather, blizzards, yeah. thunderstorms, etc., Agatha Christie-esque trapped in a location when you cannot trust the law. But well, congrats on surviving the Halloween season. So that was from Diana. And then um, I actually saved this one for last because this is a good one. Uh, this is uh, somebody had a good name for the, the tech line. This might be it. Okay. I think this might be it. Said this is uh, this is from uh, the six one eight. It says, "Hey Troy and Cody, I'm a little behind on the podcast, but I've been catching up and just found out about this number. You haven't already named the texting feature. You should call it the haunt line, since Cody said it should involve a pun." Okay, all right. I like that. I like that's it a too. pretty good one. I think that's moved to the top of my maybe list. And anyway, have a good day. Thanks for sharing your knowledge. Keep me entertained at work. So the hotline, that's a pretty good one. That is, it's right, it's right there too. Are, I know. And, and I'm trying to now determine, are we ever going to land on one or are we just going to keep? Uh, I know, I'm just keep asking people to send them <laughs> yeah. in. I don't know. Um, but if we'll, we'll decide for season two, for season eight, uh, we'll decide <laughs> sure. what it's going to be. But uh, I'm liking that one. So uh, I think that's one definitely to keep in mind. So, okay, now you're free. We can do whatever you want. I just beautiful like to do my text. So. Absolutely. So anyway, don't, I'm, one last time, number, text line, 217-791-7859. Text us if you, uh, if you have a comment or a question, you want to throw it in out there about the show. So Awesome. I love it. Okay. So I have immediately a question right off the bat. Uh, okay. And I know I could have Googled this, but I, I, I like to do stuff this way. But how do they come up with the call signs and stuff for radio stations? Do you know? Well, I don't know all the details, all the details of how they work, but I'm going to answer your question as to why this is a K station uh -huh. and the other station she worked at is a W because the Mississippi River is the dividing line. So anything east of the Mississippi is a W like WLS, you know, WNY in New York, um, but then K is west of the Mississippi. So that huh. would be Iowa or KMOX in St. Louis, mm -hmm. KSDK, or, you know, uh, then you get out into, you know, LA and all that stuff. But yeah, that's all, those are all K's. And I don't know why that was decided that I, I, you know, again, if only we had a way to look, but I know. it's not necessary at the moment. There's no time. Uh, but no, well, it's not even that. It's just that uh, we didn't look. Uh, but so I'm not sure what the details are on that. Um, I just used to do radio. I didn't study it. So Got I'm sure it. there's a class someone could take, but I would not take one. 
So right, and 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 I won't be googling it because it's way more fun to have somebody write in and tell. I know, us and tell us why we're dumbasses, way. and say so just go, you know Google it, dumbass. So. Yeah, but this is way more fun. Uh, yeah. So June twenty seventh, nineteen ninety five. Um, Jody, um, who's in trout? Yes, true, 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 true. I finally, after all these years, I can finally now after doing this episode. I'm able to spell that correctly. Uh huh. And I finally it's, figured out how to say her name. It's, I had no idea. I would just, if I read it to myself in my head, I would just go H something and skip over it because mm -hmm. that's not, uh, but I've had enough people who have schooled me now. Right. I had to get some help um, on that. So well, Renee, I, Renee, of course, being of course. one of the helpers, but I also looked it up and found the exact pronunciation. And then I wrote it out phonetically for both of us yes. in the script because it's not an easy one. Where so. I still where I still biffed it. But that's the thing is I've watched, I've heard of this story before and because I've seen it on, yeah. um, I found it on at least 20, 20, 48 hours and up yeah, and man, It's sad because it's sad, and, man. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And it's, it's everywhere. And I noticed that people will pronounce their name differently depending on where we're watching it. Uh, anyway, so yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there you can find on this with documentaries and things. She goes by Jane. Um, she's eventually she's a late she's late to work a lot, and her and her producer kind of have an unspoken rule where they will call each other if they're going to be late, and so they speak on the phone, and then nobody ever hears from her ever again. Essentially, right, right, yeah. Uh, this is a this is a weird one because you 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 get her on the phone, and then you have evidence that she got to her tried car. to leave. Yeah, yeah. And what happened in between with, yeah. you know, I mean, how, obviously how someone grabbed her in the parking lot. Right. But yeah. beyond that, we know nothing. And how you long know? could it have been in the parking yeah. lot? Honestly, you know, without... I know. Right. That's the thing. And, you know, yet a couple of people who said that they saw, you know, a van parked there with the motor running. But that doesn't guarantee that's who it was. I mean, that could have been somebody waiting for someone else. Right. I mean, there's just no way to know. So they're just like zero clues here. Yeah. Really, there just isn't anything. You know, I mean, literally, and that's what, and I say that at the end of this is that that's what makes this thing so baffling and why it's easy to understand why it's never been solved mm -hmm. because literally anything could have happened and literally anyone could have been involved. I mean, there's nothing to say. Yeah, there just isn't, you know, and that I think that makes this worse than, yeah. than most things. You, you know, really dive in, you really dove into toward the end going through like, well, this could have happened. This could happen. This could yeah, happen. Yeah, like, well, there's any so of many different have. routes. Yeah. yeah, there's just there's just no way to nail this down. And you know, I think it's a, I I just think it's especially sad because, um, I mean, it, 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 this is somebody in that prime of their life who mm -hmm. probably would have gone somewhere. Mm -hmm. You know, in the '90s news game. I mean, she had the the perfect look for the '90s, the perfect everything for the '90s. You know, and she was just getting started and. Uh, did a good job. I've watched some of her newscasts, you know, that people, you know, that are available. There are mm -hmm. some out there available. So I watched some of them just to kind of get a sense of what she was like, you know, um, rather than just reading about her or writing about her. Um, and it's, you know, I think that, I don't know, makes it worse. And, you know, and I, and I talked about this too, and this is one of those things I could have gone on to a long tangent on about how dangerous it is for women to be in the news business. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there are psychos out there, you know, we, we have no idea with celebrities, you know, we, we're always like, oh, those poor babies, all that money. Oh, you know, you know, oh, how dare they, you know, complain because somebody wants to take their picture. We have no idea what those people go through and then, and how dangerous their lives really can be. 
Right. You know, when you think about somebody having, um, you know, um, bodyguards and you're thinking they need bodyguards for. Yeah, they do. Because people they are crazy. Do. People are crazy. And, you know, I think and and this is um, when you you get into news, whether it's a um, small town news or, or, or mid-sized city news or, or a big, big city news. And you think about these people are this is a different rung of show business. This is it's still show business, though. There's no doubt about that. It's still mm-hmm. show business. And th- these people are, you see these people more than you see your average celebrities. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, or you used to. Right. I don't know if it's the same anymore because people don't, you know, people have cut the, the cable cord and, you know, the, the networks all, you know, went to cable and it kind of shot them in the foot. You know, nobody uses antennas anymore or anything, you know, so maybe you don't see your newscasters the way that you used to. But when I was a kid, you know, that was you, you turn on the news or you turn on the news in the evening. People sat down and watched the news when they ate dinner and stuff. You know, I mean, that's just how it was. So you would see people that were on your local news more than you would ever see a celebrity out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd be looking at those people every single day, every night. And a lot of people, you know, especially like in the 90s when, you know, yes, there was cable and, and thing, but there was no streaming. I mean, you had, you know vhs tapes if you wanted to watch movies but you couldn't you know it just it wasn't yeah hbo was around and stuff like that but you're still talking about people mostly watching network news you know and they're watching their local network news and you know these people are out there you know it's a pretty girl and she's on tv every day and you're a nut and you start thinking you know her and you're her friend and you see them out in public you know mason city not that big of a town you know and so you see her people out in a bar you see them out in public and you know she's all her her family and her friends would talk about how you know she ne- always had time for everybody mm-hmm. it's always friendly did not ever want to push anybody away didn't want to you know just cut somebody off and walk off and so she'd give these people her time a day and they knew where to find her you know which you know and not that she was doing anything wrong she wasn't it's not her fault you know none of this is her fault it's whatever nutcase grabbed her yeah. you know but it's just you can see how dangerous this this can be. I mean, I'm probably not for everybody, but it seems like if you start asking around or, or do a search online, start looking to see how many of these these ladies, these women who have done these, you know, been on the news, how many close calls they've had. Yeah, it was disturbing when I went to look it up. I mean, I was looking just to see, is this something that happens? Yeah, it happens a lot. And including even other people that worked at the same station that she was on Damn. had the same problems, you know? So yeah, it's just too many possibilities. Sure. In story, you know? So, well, yeah, I mean, think about, you know, even people coming up and talking to us and stuff and how much they know about us and me thinking about podcasters and podcasters specifically that I've met where I'll start talking to them and I feel like I know them and they clearly yeah. are like, you do not know me. And that's just, right, that's exactly. just audio. And like that's, right, right. the video, I feel like adds a whole other level. And now it's like, okay, take that, those two kind of parts and then add in somebody who's deranged, you know, yeah, um, has exactly. some mental issues and it could be, yeah, a recipe for, for disaster. Um, so yeah, well, I guess we'll, we'll know we've made it once, um, you know, somebody tries to come after it. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. She's like you said, she's very kind and open. Um, and maybe 
somebody missed, you know, takes that the wrong way. But this is another thing too. It could have been somebody that was obsessed with her from the show, or it could have been somebody in her, you know, personal life too. Because yeah, there's true. too many, too many different angles. Um, yeah. the, the main suspect was and remains um, John Van Ness. He lives at her apartment complex. Uh, she just wants to be friends. He decides to name a boat after her. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's um. Yeah. That's yeah. where you. Yeah. That's where it goes. That's where it goes too far. Right, so, right. I mean, you know, and, you know, there are a lot of hints and I didn't get into all that. But, you know, there is a little bit of a hint of this guy's got more money than he should. Mm-hmm. You know, it seems like, you know, who's he connected with? Yeah, I mean, there is nobody knows and there's just no way to know. And there's so many possibilities here. But, um, yeah, that that story about the that Robin Waltram, who was another reporter at the station where. Jody worked and um, she was talking about how, you know, she was doing an interview with this guy and she he just like totally creeped her out, uh-huh. you know, after Jody disappeared. And so he's like, I yeah, this guy, there's something weird here. And then when she got to the part about the boat and that's right. where I, that was kind of where that was like the last straw for me was the boat. Yeah. I'm like, OK, yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah. Well, you know, even telling the police, you know, you can't help but love the woman. And yeah. God. Um, and the the cops keep keep coming to him, though. I mean, a search in a basement in 24 or 2004 yeah. and then vehicles in 2017. So they're really yeah, they, they're really kind of. Yeah, either. I think that they always hoped that eventually they'd find something to prove that he did it and they never could. You know, I mean, I hear that a lot. I hear that from a lot of different situations I've, I've heard it had people say it to me personally you know about some of the stories and things i've written about well they'll say well we know who did it we just can't prove it you mm-hmm. know or the cops know who did it we just can't prove it you know yep uh, i hear that a lot and i i kind of feel like that in this case that that's how the cops feel is they feel like that this is the guy but they'll never be able to prove it and right. and, and they can't and if i was i mean you could take the last 15 minutes of of my monologue and use that as reasonable doubt at his trial. Of course, just because yeah. there's just no way to know who it was, you know, so I don't know. There's nope. just too many, too many possibilities. I know not only, yeah, not enough strong enough leads. So uh, this one was interesting though, because this is something that I don't know if it wasn't in the show that I watched or if it was just something I didn't remember, but I definitely was not recalling it. Uh, January, 1998, Investigative reporter named Caroline Lowe at WCCO in Minneapolis was looking um, at rapist Tony Jackson, who'd been living, you know, two blocks away from the station. He was into radio and this sort of thing, um, even approaches um, Jody at at a bar. At According after- to an anonymous witness. Right, 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 yeah, right. But, but I mean, it's but it's, it's, it's it, compelling. I had no reason to, to make it up. I mean, yeah, you know, so. Yeah. And yeah. four days after attacking his girlfriend, uh, Jody disappears. Um, I also have no idea what those rap lyrics mean that you. Yeah, I, um, I that, that was part of the lyrics and, and for, for whatever reason after, I mean, it, I mean, it's a town in Iowa, you know, <laughs> and it is a farm and a silo and, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I can see where she put it together and it was <laughs> disturbing enough for the, the cellmate to write it down. Right. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't know what the, the rhyme the the rhythm to the rhyme there is but i um i just read it in probably the most white voice possible <laughs> i don't know how to fix that but and no, i apologize okay. for anyone i offended but um yeah it's uh but they didn't find anything right I mean, you, you know, can't make it stick yeah and they, no, and they and look 
Yeah, they tried. And it's it's interesting. It could yes. certainly just be a coincidence, but it could be. It's just as interesting as all the, the other possible theories are. Right. You know? Yeah. And you and, have you have to you check know. it out when there's that yeah. much yeah. going for it. Like you have yeah. to look into it. Right. Um, but then also, was it a police officer? So September 2011, a former officer claimed she received a tip that Jane's disappearance was caused by the cops. Um, officers LT uh, Frank Stearns and LT uh, Ron Vende weird Vinda weird yeah Vinda weird okay yeah. Um, yeah. former iowa department of criminal investigation agent bill basler so there's there's a lot going on with this too it there is and there yeah. is and it's a very uh, it's a very i don't think there's anything to it uh honestly i think something something went on that we'll never know about with this in this police department involving this woman and her church and all the things that happen you know petty revenge kind of you know kind of stuff yeah and so she made these accusations after getting fired. Uh-huh. And so then, you know, I mean, nobody ever took them seriously. Well, at least no one who investigates the case takes it seriously. But unfortunately, there are still people around. And listen, I found some recent posts uh-huh. like this year. Me too. That people have put up about how the police are involved and they're anybody who questions them, they're trying to ruin their lives and stuff if they, you know, point the fingers at the police. And I, I've seen nothing. I mean, I, listen, I, I, I've not spent 25 years on this case, but in the, in the time and the things that I've, I've dug into, I didn't really ever see anything that made it other than this one woman, you know, who alleged that police officers who were bullying her were involved in the murder. I, I didn't find anything credible that said that, you know, anything happened. And, you know, we've got the the, the machine shed spray paint story, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, but that guy didn't even live there at the time, you know? Yeah. So it's not like she's buried under his machine shed on property he didn't own. It's not like you drove up to somebody's house and said, hey, I'm thinking about buying this house in five years. I yeah. wonder if you'd let me bar, bear a body underneath your machine I'm going to move to the scene of the crime. Yeah, so would you mind? You know, it doesn't make any sense. So I don't know, man. Well, with, um, this, with the spray paint stuff, too, I was thinking like, okay, somebody framing him or they're trying to do something or something well, for right, some shit. Exactly. But like nothing. And it could be, it could be anything because – and the guy's – you know, was a cop for years and years. So it's not going to be just somebody who doesn't like him. Right. And so, right. well, let's just say it was him. But there are <laughs> there really there are people around that area who still believe that cops are involved somehow mm-hmm. because, well, that's the I mean, that's the theory that's going to catch the attention of people. That's the most uh, that's the most I should say glamorous. That isn't the right word, but the most the, the most appealing theory to a subset of people. You know, I mean, who don't like the cops, right? You know, so, hey, let's blame it on cops. And you're always going to have that. And, you know, I mean, if we we could get into just about any any murder, any unsolved crime, and I could I guarantee you that I could spend an hour with it and find a way that the cops were somehow involved. Sure. You know what I mean? Because you can yeah, always yeah. make it whoever's closest to anything. They're the ones that are going to look bad. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's not. I don't know. I, I just don't put a lot of stock in it. I mean, you, I think I've made clear who I think is responsible. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I will never, that'll never be proven. I don't think so anyway, but go ahead. I'm sorry. Fair enough. No, no, no. We just, we just have a couple uh, leftover kind of theories pretty much. Did she know too much? Maybe potentially, you know, she was a reporter. That's an interesting story too. Yeah. Yeah. The death of Billy Pruins uh, might not have been a suicide. Uh, this, 
Yeah, probably guy, wasn't. Honestly, probably wasn't. Right, but was it related? We don't know. But it definitely well, yeah. doesn't seem like a suicide. And no, it doesn't. In general. And, but the, I guess the question here is: Well, for here's here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Even if this isn't connected to Jody's case, and and you know maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I mean, you know, she knew him; they were friends. You know, and we don't even know for a fact she was investigating the case. Some of her friends uh, from that she worked with said that she was looking into it. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any evidence that exists that said she was, but she might have been. But okay, let's leave that part out. Why is no one looking into this? Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, why was into. no one looking into this? Because this obviously was uh, well, I shouldn't say obviously, but it was not. A, it was probably not a suicide. Um, and you know, I, I don't think most people figure out a way to shoot themselves in the in, in the chest and then wipe the fingerprints off their gun yeah. before they lay down with it. But you know, I suppose it could happen. Um, but it seems unrelated or seems, you know, impossible. Um, but whether or not it's related to Jody, I don't know. But it does kind of, again, digs up that question is that there have been several drug-related murders and disappearances around the area. And you've got a guy who has more money than he possibly should, who also is connected to someone who disappeared. So I, you know what I mean? I don't yeah. know. There's a lot of threads out there and you can pull, in this case, you know, usually they'll say, oh, you know, you find the right thread and you pull it, you're going to find the evidence you need. In this case, there's like a hundred threads. And if you pull all of them, you're just going to get a hundred threads because there is no clear anything here of, of any of any kind yeah you're just no. going to be more confused and just have a lot yeah, more exactly. uh yeah it could have been somebody also said you know maybe um her friend amy or colleague work one of her colleague job. work colleague yes, yes not yeah, friend who, not friend yeah which i mean you know what they they didn't get along big deal yeah. You know what I mean? Like I said, I, I think if um, we'd all be in jail, it, yeah. we'd all be in jail. Yeah. <laughs> but we had a, if there were people that we work with, we didn't like, you know, so. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, like I said, uh, oh, oh, could have been some men that she met on a boat the weekend before, but this also yeah. kind of points to stronger evidence for your suspect. Um, yeah. I mean, general. and that's, it's, I mean, these guys, uh, you know, these are, I mean, listen, We've known these guys yeah, right, practically right. or knew someone exactly like them. You know, I just called them party bros a couple of times. It's exactly what they are. That in fact, it we up. even had party bros in another one of our stories. Remember the Lake Michigan girls? Yes. And they had yes. the guys cruising around with the boats. Okay, this is probably their dads here or something, you know. <laughs> right, and right. then these are their sons in this story. So, yeah, now these, uh, yeah, I don't think that probably, but it does make it sound more credible that that old John there got, you know, a little stressed out after the way he acted at the birthday party. Mm-hmm. You know, I could just, I could just imagine the the video of him just like standing in the corner, just like mm-hmm. sulking, yeah, you know, like mad, a child. Yeah. You know. Um, yeah, so that's, I mean, that's it. We, there's a bunch of possibilities. We'll probably never know. Uh, she was yeah. declared dead. What'd you say? 2001. 2001. They're, they're still checking yeah. stuff out. Um, for, yeah, I mean, her mom has passed away, so her mom's never going to know her sister's still around, but yeah, her mom's never going to know, you know, what happened. And, you know, and, but you know, this is one of those, this is one of those stories though, that, and again, you know, maybe that gets into that whole syndrome that we've talked about and we haven't talked about it thoroughly but we've mentioned it a bit and i we hear a lot more about it uh the the blonde you know the missing blonde 
syndrome, you know, disappearances. Yes, yes, yes. Why is this story after all this time still so prominent? I mean, is it because she's a pretty young blonde or is it more just as likely because she was part of the news business, the entertainment business? And so she's a little more glamorous than a lot of people who go missing. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know why both. we're still talking about it, but nobody's going to let it. Nobody let let it go. Yeah. Um, I mean, as as long I mean, as recently as 2019, they were serving warrants on John Vaness, you know, so I mean, you know, this stuff is is it's still out there. Stories still in stuff. I mean, I mean, we talk we've talked about a lot of stuff that no one is talking about anymore in this season of the podcast. But we included this one. I I included this one. I shouldn't even say blame it on you. I'll I'll take the blame. <laughs> I included this one. Um, you know, so maybe somebody will still solve it. I don't know. Um, I'd like to think so, but it's hard. I'd like to think so with all of them, but right. Know, yeah. This I think the more recent chance. ones, a better chance we have. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And again, we're just, uh, you know, we just tell the stories as, as we yeah. see them and we try yeah. to make sure we're always only making fun of, uh, the perpetrators and the, yeah, the people who the deserve victims. to be. Yeah. Maybe yeah. Well, I wanted to give a quick shout out to our most recent uh, patrons. So thank you so oh, much sure. for su subscribing to the show to uh, Stephanie, JD, Robin, Samantha, Aaron, Jennifer, Slate Gut, Jeff, and Christy. <laughs> so thank you very much for supporting the show. Uh, it, it is now time for our ghostwriter segment. So if you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, you can email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com or leave us a review or text us. So you get a bunch of different ways you can do it. Um, but this one's from uh, Silent Executioner. Uh, it says, yeah, I, I love it. It says, I highly <laughs> recommend this podcast. Been listening to this since the beginning. I grew up just a few miles from Alton, then lived there for 14 years, just around the corner from Milton School. I was glad to hear the Alton Remix episodes, which were excellent, even though all of them are. Troy, have you thought about covering any part, um, any other part of the Americas? Then it says, Cody, carry on with the winky face. So I don't know if that means a good thing or a bad thing, but I'm glad they didn't insult me. Um, that I'll take that as a win. Um, but yeah, Troy, Troy, you've only done one book that wasn't North. Oh, outside of America. Is that what it said? Yeah, America. Oh, yeah. I thought he said, oh, I thought he said American. I thought, dude, every book is. I know. Oh, but I know. Okay. That's, that's no, I get I, it. That's okay. why I wanted to clarify. Outside. Um, yeah, I mean, at some point. I mean, I've got a couple of things that are on not off the stove, but it's still on the back burner. Okay. That will at least be outside the country a little, mm -hmm. a little bit. Okay. Um, I, you know, I only did the one book. I've only done one book ever that was outside the country. And that was that, uh, the Valley of the Kings, mm -hmm. you know, the curse. That's the Pharaoh's ones. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the only one I've ever done. And that was my first. And I, I'm sure there'll be something that travels outside at some point. Mm -hmm. I just, I have a very long list of I'm books. sure I'm so, sure you do you know, I, I'm constantly updating my list but uh but they are on the list I mean they're like I said they're a little back burner but they're still out there so, yeah yeah awesome well good question and thank you for reaching out uh that's all I got man for okay. this one all right man well so um guys just a couple of things before we uh before we sign off um, Cody mentioned all the people supporting the show. Of course, that's talking about the Patreon show that you heard about at the very beginning. Uh, we are almost finished with season three about H.H. Holmes. So if you uh, are, are wanting to get on in on that and just listen to the whole thing all at once uh, instead of just an episode at a time, uh, you can do that because we are almost there and you'll be able to hear the entire season. So if you're interested in that, join us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash 
American Hauntings. Uh, I'll also mention that, you know, we always have that podcast discount where you put in the word podcast, you get 10% off. Uh, but since you guys are going to be hearing this on Tuesday, the 28th, you might have seen the post that I put up yesterday on the 27th that said that if you check out uh, our, our online store between November 27th and December 10th, you can actually use a code word or a promo code HOLIDAY and get 20% off anything you order. That's just a holiday season special thing that we're doing for two weeks. So um, maybe take advantage of that while you can. Uh, I think this will be the only episode that's going to fall into that category. So uh, I'll be listened and continue to listen through and heard this so you can get an extra 10% off. So, all right, man. Well, that's it. Thank you. My voice held out. So yes. uh, we made it. Uh, we made it. We made it. So. All right. Well, I'll, I'll wrap it up that uh, this episode of the American Hogs podcast was written by Troy Taylor and it was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a review on iTunes, tell your friends, neighbors, random people on the street about it, and then follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else that you listen to your favorite podcast. Find the website at AmericanHogspodcast.com for more info about the show, notes, photos, links, and more. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and anywhere else that you waste hours every day when you're supposed to be working or studying or buying gifts for your loved ones. <laughs> we promise that we're much more entertaining. Thanks for listening. We couldn't and definitely wouldn't do it without you. So until next time, goodbye. So long. Hey, see you later. Yeah, we'll see you later. All righty. Oh, it held out. It held out. I really wasn't sure. Um, so it's not doing too bad. It actually did get worse.